raise your hand if you've ever heard of the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, several of you. He's, he's one of those uh, uh, few comedians where you can actually not have to stand behind your children as they listen and do this to their ears every once in a while. Like, you don't have to do that as much. He's, he's pretty good. Uh, uh, Jim Gaffigan is uh, married to Jeannie, and they have five children. And um, he's pretty funny. It's dry wit, uh, to be sure, at every stretch of the imagination. But if you've been following his story of late, stuff has happened in his life that's not funny. Namely, his wife Jeannie got a brain tumor. And she has been suffering through that and recovering from that. And I'm going to show you, maybe the wheels have totally fallen off. I'm about to show you a Tylenol commercial clip. But it encapsulates kind of what they've been through in so many words in just under two minutes. And I want you just to consider the enormity of what you're seeing. felt like I hit the jackpot. After that, I was miserable. No. <laughs> Genie handling a lot of things, that's not manufactured, that's true. Like, I remember one time I was putting together a scooter, and I asked Jeannie if we had a hammer, and she was like, we have three hammers. Where are they? And she's like, in the toolbox. And I was like, we have a toolbox? I was taking my kids to the pediatrician, and the doctors noticed that I couldn't hear out of one of my ears. And that's when it was discovered that I had a massive brain tumor. And I started bargaining with God. I'll do anything to just be alive and make it through this. After the surgery, I was in a very weakened state. It was pretty surprising the role reversal that had occurred. Our entire marriage has been Jeannie being this incredible support system. So it's the least I could do. I often have a tracheotomy, and it's pretty gross. Jim called it my blowhole. It's not like I called her a whale. You know what I mean? He a did call me a whale. A thin whale. Yeah. but With so a blowhole. All right, Peg. He elevated... That's good technique. ...a situation that could have been horrible. It's too pastular. It's an honor to get the opportunity to be there for someone. But it is nice to go back to Super Genie and Lazy Jim. I still don't know where the toolbox is. I know we have ones, I just don't know where it is, you know. I don't even know what's in it. I suppose tools, right? In one sense, that's extraordinary. Because it's not every day that your spouse comes home from the doctor and says, I have a brain tumor. And for him to do what he did, that's, that's extraordinary. But look, in another sense, totally ordinary, um, uh, natural. Uh, none of you looked at that and, and saw what he did for her and thought, that's weird. Why would he do that? Uh, if anything, uh, you know what would have been weird to you is if he had abandoned her in her hour of need. Or if uh, she looked at him and said, I need more help with the trach, and he looks back at her and he says, don't guilt me into helping you. You would think that's weird. But here's the thing. Why is what he did in those two minutes, why does that to your ears and eyes and your stomach, why does that feel totally normal? Why does that just make sense? 
why, if you are in a similar situation, would, would feel compelled to rise to the occasion? Why is that normal to you? You know what? The answer to that question is the same answer to the question that James is raising in our topic today from James chapter 2, which is perhaps the most hotly debated passage in all of the New Testament. And the question he raises in that one is the same question that we're asking here. Why does that look normal, and why would it be bizarre for him to, to walk off the set and say, you know what, let somebody else do that. We're talking about James's experience in the new church, this new fledgling church, these churches that are composed primarily of Jewish Christians in what is now today Syria. James is the half-brother of Jesus and at one time thought him mad, but eventually called him Lord. And it is this same James that saw his half-brother die a criminal's death and then rise as one who was Lord over death. And on that count alone, he writes and stands in awe because the world has changed as a consequence of what happens to his half-brother. And my argument today is that not only does everything change, but that includes how we think about faith and trust and love. Why the idea of having faith in a love naturally works with extending love to the one who was faithful. And on that count, we're going to listen to why it would be foolishness to separate the idea of faith in a love and loving the one who is faithful. In fact, it's just good sense to do so. So we're going to consider what James has to say in this hotly debated passage in three ways. The nonsense of separating faith and love, the good sense of keeping them together, and the plain sense of how we do. The nonsense of separating faith and love, the good sense in keeping them together, and the plain sense in how we can. If you're able, we're going to pick up where James left off in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. So if you can stand, why don't you? James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It may be. 
Last week, you remember if you were here that James is talking about the kind of community that emerges among those who believe that Jesus, in fact, was risen from the dead. And last week, you remember him talking, or rather calling out, the tendency that was beginning to emerge in that community of favoritism, uh, of showing a plain favorites with those who had means and, and, and dissing those who did not. And James, in short order, says how that is entirely contrary to the very nature of God, to the very nature of wisdom, and to the very nature of what it means to follow him. And here in our passage, uh, James doesn't even come up for air uh, to continue talking about what kind of community emerges um, where those who believe that Jesus was risen from the dead believe that. And what he is arguing there, um, or what kind of community emerges, is the one that believes this. It's nonsense to separate faith in who Jesus is and what he did from the love that proceeds from that belief. Just as it would be nonsense for Jim Gaffigan to look at Jeannie and go, do it yourself. So James is saying it's nonsense to separate those two things. That, that faith and acts of love and trust that proceed from faith, they don't live in airtight containers. They're not the same thing, but they're inseparable. And to separate them is nonsense. And, and you hear that spoken of very um, unequivocally there in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, right now, many of us, maybe myself included, are dizzy um, by that phrase, that question rhetorically offered, can that faith save him? Um, haven't we heard Paul in other letters, like in his church letter to the church at Ephesus, to say that we are, um, by, it is uh, by grace through faith alone that we are saved, not because of works. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Didn't, didn't we hear Paul say that? And, and so, boom, right here, we're in the middle of the controversy. Uh, Paul and James at the bike rack, 3 o'clock. What will they do? How will the dust settle? And I would only ask you here at this point to say, hang on. We'll come back to the controversy in time. I, I, just hear out James. Do him that favor. Do him that credit and dignity. Just um, keep listening and, and listen to the, the real tangible parts of his case. He is arguing in so many words, he's asking, what good is a profession of faith in what Jesus has done if it is unaccompanied by a sense that Jesus has really left an impression on us? Now that's a big abstraction, so let me put it into a real concreteness. Uh, You walk into this gallery tonight and you see quilts, and before that you saw the pastels, and next month you're going to see the juried art exhibition, because we appreciate art around here, and this community is full of artists and aficionados and if you go to a gallery and you visit many of those artworks uh, there are some works that will leave you like oh nice you're not moved by it and then there are other works where you go i'm going to stop and stare at this one i'm going to pause i'm going to sit i'm going to reflect i'm going to take in every single detail that i can you go to a film you read a book if you are taken by that you might even shed a tear if you're at the opera and you love what happened by the end of Aida after four hours of sitting to that woman sing, you might even stand to your feet and say, Brava! Why? Because you're moved. You're moved by the beauty. You're moved by something. It's left an impression on you. It's taken you captive. And one way you know what Jesus has done for you is that it has left an impression on you 
such that you're willing for him to do something through you. That's why they go together. And therefore, James, he, he provides this very stark illustration to make a point. And it's a, whether it's a hypothetical situation or whether it's a test case or, or maybe, you know, you, you, the doctors, how do they test your heart? They put you on the treadmill and then they stress it, right? They see its condition. And, and so James kind of throws at us this really stark situation that maybe is real or maybe hypothetical. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And right there, you're, you're kind of hearing the backstory of this letter. If you are new to this series, then James is not just writing an essay for an essay's sake. He's writing to a condition, and in that condition, uh, these fledgling churches, they're composed um, of people that only have about two things in common. They're Jewish people who now believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and they've been thrown together and they're huddling together for peace. And in that, in that group of people that has uh, no other thing in common but their ethnicity and their belief, um, there are some who have means that are surviving and there are others who are barely scraping by. And that is because in that world, if you are now a Jewish Christian, you no longer have the friendship of your Jewish brethren and you certainly have no... Uh, compassion from those who are part of the pagan Roman world. Some people have lost a lot of social capital and some have lost a lot of financial capital. And so you have those who have means who are getting by and those who've got none. And they're part of the same church. And apparently what's happening that James has caught wind of is that those with means are hearing from those who do not and those with means are kind of looking at them and saying, oh man, tough break. Uh, But, you know, Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And James and Jesus and Jeannie Gaffigan go, Church, please. What's at work there? Because this disconnect between a profession of what Jesus has done in you and what you feel compelled to do for allow Him to do through you will either give the lie to what you believe he's done in you or something else. And therefore, what James is talking about here is uh, among the, the, the church there that, that whoever knows, you know, stuff happens. Uh, um, when you, are, uh, you fall into an icy uh, lake, um, what does your body immediately do? It, you, you, you are trying to, your body is trying to ward off the possibility of hypothermia. And so all of the heat leaves the extremities and goes to the center of your body to keep you alive. And so in, in James's churches there, it's very quite possible they're under it from all directions. And so all of, the, all of the blood, if you will, is running to their own personal centers and they got, or they're refusing to give anything out to the extremities. And James is saying, oh, oh, but here we need to. Like the sense that you believe of what Jesus has done in you, it, it's kind of like it, it's stuck in the Star Trek transporter and hasn't quite materialized. I, I see something there. I, it, it kind of reminds me of an episode from Pink Floyd's The Wall, but I, I really can't see it yet. What's, what's going on there? And, and therefore, James is saying that, that kind of faith, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not shaping up. It's, it's, it's slow to grasp something. And, and not just that. James is so pointed as to say that, that that sort of faith in which you are content with a profession only, is, it is practically indistinguishable from somebody who has a certain belief about God but is actively opposed to them. Uh, you heard it in verse 18 and 19, which runs 
in the, in the wake of a, of a comparison or of a hypothetical you know, back and forth between two people that gets a little confusing. But, but you hear um, James say in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, put it in a really modern context. Uh, November's coming, election's going to happen. And, you know, from time to time, there are candidates that, uh, that some people f- are inspired by that. They believe that that candidate is the most powerful influence for good they could imagine. And then there are others who think that that, is, that same candidate is the most powerful influence for evil in the world. And those two sets of individuals have that different regard for that candidate, but they both believe that the candidate has powerful influence. And if you want to imagine that situation, you want to tease it out a little further, if those who believe that that candidate is a powerful influence for evil and they seek to oppose that candidate with all their might, but those who believe he's a powerful influence for good but do nothing, which set of constituencies there is showing what belief really looks like? That's the pointed comment that James is making here, to separate belief or faith from the trust and love that naturally flows from it, it's, it's nonsense. Which then leads us then to the second idea. If, if it's nonsense to separate them, then there's a lot of good sense in keeping them together. Uh, of seeing them as not the same thing, as distinct things, but as inseparable things. And, and James gives us two other reasons why it is good sense to keep faith and the love that proceeds from it together as much as you can. And the first reason is the very nature of faith itself. That's why you keep them together is because of what faith is. And, and you heard in the passage two phrases that, that go wrong pretty fast, and you can miss it if you're not looking, but he talks about a faith um, active along with my works and, and faith completed by works that... He's talking about this kind, of, this kind of connection and communion, almost this dance between what our belief is in and what proceeds from that belief. And I think if you had to come up with a contrast that might work for us in our way of thinking, uh, think about the difference between an heirloom and a seed. Um, an heirloom, right? What is an heirloom? An heirloom is that thing that we inherit from somebody, a grandmother I have in my office, a sword, that is uh, my great, 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 great grandfather who was named Thomas Binks Lafferty. I don't know where he got the sword. Sword needs a little polishing. It's kind of beautiful. It's got some sort of jewel in it. Any of you that have been on Antique Roadshow, you want to tell me about with that? Great. But there it is. It's an heirloom, and it's beautiful, and it's a gift, and it's to be cherished. And I only, the only reason I have it is not because I deserve it, but because I'm a part of his family. I, I'm just a descendant, and I'm, I belong to that line, and therefore I have received that heirloom. And in some ways, that that accurately describes what faith is. Um, It is a gift. It has beauty. It is of value. It ought to be cherished. And it only is ours by virtue of the fact that God chose to give it to me. That's, That's the nature of what faith is. And you can think of faith like an heirloom, but James is saying it's better to think of faith not so much as an heirloom and more like a seed. In some ways, a seed is a gift. You, you didn't make it. You didn't build it. You didn't engineer it. You didn't fashion it. it just, you just, it's yours. You've got it. And, but if you let the seed act in a way that it was intended to, what happens? It, it breaks. It splits. It sprouts. It shoots. And it fruits. That's what seeds do. 
It's the nature of, of seedness. And Jesus says as much. He speaks of faith. You know, if you have faith, it's just as small as a mustard seed. It can grow into one of the largest pieces of tree plant out there you could imagine. Seeds do that. That's, that's the nature of seed. And therefore, James is, is saying it's proper to, to think of faith more like a seed than an heirloom. Because an heirloom, it's like you hang it on a wall, you display it in a case, but it's usually inanimate. It doesn't really do anything, even though you have it and you value it. But, but a seed, that's, that's kind of the way faith is. The way faith was meant to be. It's faith and the love that proceeds from it, faith and the trust that proceeds from it, they're not the same thing, but they go together. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. And you know what? You want them to be so. I, I know there may be a part of you that goes, no, 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 no. I am not saved by my works. That's true. They're two different things. And James is saying, no, no, you, you want to keep them together. Do you, do you want to know why you want to keep them together? Because it is in my act of faith that actually reinforces my belief in the truth of what I hold to. It is in the what inspired what is inspired by what I believe that actually helps to <clears throat> ground me further in that which I do profess and believe. And if you'll just think of what James has already said in the context of chapter one, what did he say? He says, Trials are coming, folks. And there's nothing like a trial to test. But in the process of that trial, when it is met by faith, what does it help to do? It helps to mature that faith. Well, if that's true of trials, could that not also be true of allowing ourselves to give ourselves to the things that bear witness or testimony to what we believe? Yes, they do. They certainly do. And, and that's true of a lot of things that you and I are already familiar with. That's true of a lot of things that we, that we understand at some level but want to grow on our understanding of. That, that can even apply to something as, as off the wall as rock climbing. Um, that beach read I told you about earlier before uh, the Soldier of a Great War written by Mark Helprin, uh, two guys are talking about rock climbing and in the midst of them going out, one of them says uh, to the other about rock climbing, we can sit for days with you memorizing knots, technique, and rope handling, but in the first hour of climbing, you'll learn more than anyone can tell you in a month because your life will depend on the knots, the way you place a python, and how you run the rope. And you know that because it is in the practice of your vocation that you learn to discover the internal logic of that vocation with even greater, greater strength and solidity. It is in the practice of it that something is reinforced deeply. Something about climbing is learned by climbing, more so than even thinking about climbing. Something is learned and deepened in letting our light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven that is deeper than us only meditating upon what we hear. Um, Kids, if you're here, there will come a time when you may be in class, whether it's middle school, high school, or college, and if somebody catches wind that you believe in Jesus or that you follow him, you'll probably be ridiculed for that at some level. And they will tease you, or they will mock you, or they will do worse to you. And in that moment, you will be tempted. Do I return fire with fire? And in that moment, when you believe what Jesus says, you realize to rise above that is not to fight fire with fire. It is not to act, talk smack, or to hit back. It is to take it, and take it in love. And you know what? If you act in that way, something will be deepened in you that will confirm to you the beauty 
of what he has told you. Adults, you know stories. If you're in middle management and somebody beneath you really screws it up and they do something that's a fireable offense, if you go to bat for them and you take responsibility for what they did, even though they reasonably could be out the door because of what they did, and upper management is breathing down their neck and you say, you know what, I did this. You take one for them, you have felt just a fraction of the pain and the challenge and the internal little consternation about why you stick your neck out for anybody, but you have felt a fraction of what Jesus has felt. And in the midst of practicing that, something has deepened in you. It's why you want to keep them together. It's the nature of faith. Not only is it its nature, it's, it's that's how the story goes. James throws out two examples. Throws out Abraham. Remember Abraham? Father of faith, called out of nowhere, called to birth a nation. Um, James references the most pivotal moment in Abraham's life. He had been told he was going to be a father, even though he's old, practically dead. And Isaac certainly comes forth only on the basis of God's promise. And then what does God say to him? I want you to sacrifice him. And wait, Abraham's like, what? You, you promised. And, but when Abraham takes Isaac to that mountain and is prepared to lift a finger against Isaac, it's then that God provides him the ram. And what does that demonstrate? Abraham gets it. And James quotes the very same passage Paul quotes, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know when that happened? Before there was an Isaac. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham believes it, and God takes Abraham's belief and says, you're acceptable in my sight. On the basis of his belief. And then what happens then when he lifts a finger to Isaac? What does that show? Faith works active along with his faith. That is the way they go together. And he is only one example. Rahab is the other, and you, are, you should be glad that Rahab is an example because she's a prostitute. And why should you be glad about that? Because here's someone who's devoted her whole life to giving herself to those who do not love her. If only that she might survive which just described you and me. We give ourselves to any number of things that we almost treat like we love them, but we know that they don't love us back, and we think that's our only option, even when it isn't. And it's even the likes of her who has given herself to all manner of lovers who are not lovers that can still get something about who God is and his promises and then act deliberately on the basis of it. And therefore, she demonstrates how those two things go together. And in both places, the refusal to act on the basis of what you know or, 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 or feeling compelled to play the card, don't guilt me into acting. Um, I know who I am. There's a disconnect. Now, some of us properly ask the question, what if I struggle to believe? What if my faith is so fragile and frail and, and so episodic? what do I do about that? To which the Bible says this, oh, join the club. Abraham, Elijah, David, Job, Jeremiah, and every single one of the 12 disciples, they have a problem with faith. They have a problem believing, and that's why Jesus has led at times to say, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid, oh, ye of little faith? 
That's us. So far, though, we've only talked really abstractly about what this faith is in. We've said that faith and, and the love that proceeds from it go together, but what is that faith in? It's not this abstract thing. It's not this generic thing about faith, about just sort of a general optimism. Our faith has an object. Our faith has a content. So what is that content in? You know why you have to understand what that content is in? Because it's your only hope of keeping faith and the love that proceeds from it together. In knowing what your faith is in, that's your only hope of letting love proceed from it. But on the flip side, it's only knowing what your faith is in that keeps you from thinking that what you do can become a substitute for what Jesus did. That's why you have to keep them together. That's why you have to know what your faith is in. And what is your faith is in, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus? That you are forgiven. Full stop. That you have been united to God in Jesus such that everything that is his is yours. Full stop. That you have been adopted by God at his decision and that decision is irrevocable and you forever belong to him. Full stop. That you have an inheritance kept in eternity for you that cannot rust, that cannot weather, full stop. And that you belong to him in such a way that that belongingness is so secure that nothing can snatch you out of his hand, full stop. That's the good news. That's what our faith is in. And that work that he did is a finished work. Can you see then why holding to that idea of what he has done can help to displace all the reasons why you want to be so self-focused? Can you see why believing in what he has done can free you up to actually think of others as, as almost as equal if not having greater concern or need for concern as you have for yourself. Do you see now why it's natural that these works of love and trust would follow from faith? Because beauty moves us. And the most beautiful thing in our world, in our history, in our ability to conceive of it is what Jesus has done for us freely. The beauty of his love, the dying for his enemies, that inspires the sort of faith the sort of frail moves that are mixed with modeled motives all the time, I know. Such that if you have lost the will to follow it, it is possible that you have lost sight of the beauty of his love. It makes sense why those works of love and trust would follow from faith, but can you also see why it has to be faith in what Jesus has done that has to inform everything that you might do in response? Because you and I are really good at coming up with all sorts of different motives for why we do what we do. And you and I are capable, if not unconscious, to the possibility that, you, that, that we give ourselves to things that look moral and loving. Why? Because we don't believe that what Jesus has done is what Jesus has really done. And so we've got to create our own reason for why God should let us into his table. Here's the controversy then. Paul says we're saved by faith alone. James says we're not saved by faith alone. So who's right? 
They both are. What? What? One commentator says, Paul and James, they're using the same vocabulary, but they are not using the same dictionary. Because when Paul says we are justified by faith alone, he's using the word justified in the idea that you can establish your own case for why God should let you have a seat at his table. That's what it means to be justified in his sight, to, to come up with some sort of moral resume that you present unto him and say, see, look what I did. Now, doesn't that oblige you, O Lord, O maker of all things, to let me have a seat at your table? Paul says, um, good luck with that. It'll never fly. You are not justified by anything but by faith in what Jesus has done. He's right. And because he's right, it's why we sometimes need to be spurred on to love and good works. But when James says we are justified not by faith alone, he's using the word justified in the sense of testifying to the reality thereof of proving out what God has done in us. That's what he means by justified. And you know what? He's right. That those unto whom Jesus has made an impression, something will flourish and flower from within them. And sure enough, that is the case. There is no abundance of loving works that will ever be a substitute for Jesus' loving work. Never. But there is no faith in Jesus' finished work that will not produce those similar works of love. And that's why you hear C.S. Lewis say in one chapter in Mere Christianity, to trust him means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There'd be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you're trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he's begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. In a sentence, Fleming Rutledge says this, the message of Jesus Christ in some is this, salvation is not in your hands, therefore be bold. That's the good sense of keeping faith and love together. So what then is the plain sense of keeping them together? How do you do that? James is calling these churches to repent. And maybe you and I need to also. And I will acknowledge to you straight up that in my childhood and the way I was grown, I developed a really practiced compliance. Whatever you told me to do, I'll do that. Uh, whatever rule you give me, I'll follow that. I don't know why, and I certainly would do it in love. I would just do it because I knew that that was how I would get my acceptance. Folks, that is not the kind of motivation that the gospel is out to cultivate in us, not a practiced compliance. The repentance it is calling us to is not the sort of fearfulness that is summarized by that, that snarky little phrase, Jesus is coming, look busy. That is not what he's out to have us to repent of. To repent is to go back, to go back, to go back, to go back again and again how as long as it takes to find the beauty of what he's done. 
of what he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves, of the forgiveness that he bought for us that we could not buy for ourselves, for the union that he's united us to that we could not unite to ourselves, for the rescue that he's brought unto us that we could not rescue ourselves from, that which he did which we could not do, we must go back there until we find it beautiful. And as you do, you need to know how Jesus responds to those who are faithless. Do you know how Jesus responds to those who are faithless? He cooks them breakfast. Peter, the night Jesus is betrayed, he lingers back and he denies Jesus three times. And on the third trial, he's huddled around a fire pit, a charcoal fire pit. What a weird detail for John to remember. Charcoal fire pit, he denies him. Jesus dies, Jesus rises, and in their funk, the disciples do what? They go out to fish. And there on the bank, the first thing they notice is what they smell. And you know what they smell? A charcoal fire. And ask the neurobiologists, which of our five senses is the one most linked to memory? And it's your sense of smell. Peter smells that and remembers. And Jesus makes him breakfast. And the one who talked big and said, I'll die with you, and the one who ran for cover when it all went down, Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. Okay, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying to him, as he's saying to us, if you've been faithless, look, let's call that what it was, faithless. But you know what? It's okay. My love for you is strong and steadfast. And we've got work to do. And you may die trying, but it won't be in vain. That's how Jesus deals with faithless people. He cooks them breakfast. That's a good savior. That's one worth calling Lord and following. You've got to go back. And because this text has a lot to do with showing mercy to those in need, uh, it may be a a really off-the-wall application, but come on November 9th, man. Come to the conference. I don't know what we as a community will do, what we're not already doing when it comes to showing hospitality to our vicinity and to ourselves. Maybe that's why we need to do this together, so come. And then we will see that what we find beautiful in Jesus And what seems natural between a husband and wife like the Gaffigans will become utterly desirable unto our heart. Let no man, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. Let's pray. Help us to see two things, sir. What you have done that we could not do and which we cannot compensate you for in which we cannot replicate perfectly, in which we will fail at all the time. Help us to see that. But also help us to see your beauty, that we might find the things that are hard but loving still desirable. In Jesus' name, amen.